Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Hi everyone, welcome to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. That was Sally with Out of the Pan. She's on every Sunday before us from 12 to 1 with all things queer related. And yeah, she does a great job. My name's Trevor, by the way, and I'm joined in the studio by Carolyn. Hello. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We work and live on these lands and we should really think about what that means more than just always an acknowledgement and that colonisation is ongoing and hasn't stopped and what we can do to try and resist that and help First Nations people resist that. Today we are joined by two special guests from the Aotearoa Liberation League in Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand. This is Summer and Chris. Welcome to the show. Hi Trevor, thank you so much. Thank you both for having us on. Hi, tēnā kōrua. It's always lovely to hear Australians and they give that mihi, that acknowledgement to um, the nations that live on Australia. We do the same thing here in Aotearoa. Uh, he mihi nā Aotearoa kia kōrua mō te tautoko ki tō māua kaupapa. Uh, a nei uh, te whenua o Ngāpuhi me mihi atu māua kia rātou. Kia ora. And yeah, thank you. Too, so much for um, for your support and welcoming us on. Um, we're really excited to have a, a chat, a cordial. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. We're both really thrilled to meet you. So can we start off with um, you telling listeners a bit about all, like how did you, you start off and it hasn't really been that long that you've been operating. Is that is that right? The last year or so? Yeah, we're a pretty recent group. Yeah, well, uh, it's been in our minds for a while. I've been working on different projects. Um, the documentary Milked, when we first started thinking about the group, a lot of my energy went into this documentary. And now that that's kind of wrapped up, um, we've been able to put more energy into our kaupapa, Aotearoa Liberation League. It's really quite new. We've only been putting energy into this kaupapa for probably about a year now, at full pace anyway. And now it's taking our full attention. So it's been going really well. Um, we've been getting amazing support from people. Obviously, the angle that we're taking, which is trying to connect different forms of oppression and finding effective ways to communicate those connections to people, uh, is something that people are really hungry for because we know the connections are there. Mm-hmm. It's just it's difficult when it comes to pointing to them in ways to communicate about them. And so that's the goal of our organization. Uh, and yeah, we're really fresh and we're really um, enjoying um, meeting other activists and finding ways to support one another and hoping, talking with people like yourselves, that we can meet more people to only strengthen our movement for the betterment of not just animals, the environment, and of course, marginalised peoples as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we actually met at a conference called Decolonizing Animals, which is very relevant to what we do now. Oh, brilliant. We were both speaking and we saw each other and we connected and fast forward a couple of years and we we're like, we really need to create a platform that helps bring all of the sort of academic speak to the public forum because a lot of these really important discussions around decolonization and the connection between oppressions is happening at that academic level, yeah. but it needs to be simplified and brought to you know mm. younger audiences and people from all sorts of different backgrounds who might never come across these mm. ideas. So all was born out of this want to create a space that connects animal rights issues with other oppressive constructs and to draw them all to their root causes, which is the imperial colonial mindset that governs our entire reality and to draw attention to specific sets of tools that are used time and time again, whether it's oppressing animals, whether it's oppressing marginalized people, women, etc. Because it's true that, you know, all of these distinct oppressions are important and we do need to understand their differences. But we need to go deeper than that and to connect them all mm -hmm. to what's actually causing them. So the discussion, I think, needs to develop beyond just, mm. oh, there's random crossovers between them. You know, they randomly intersect. It's not so much that they randomly intersect as that they're born of the, you know, I would say they have the same roots, but I don't want to compare colonialism with a tree. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, so all is a space to discuss how we're living under a trance, essentially, a colonial trance. And this is an idea that one of my favorite writers, Afco, talks about where she likens colonization to witchcraft it's not so much that there are these separate systems that are all separate it's that we're living under one big trance and it has various expressions one of which is animal oppression mm. these ideas are important because they create space for us to imagine an alternative reality I think that's what we have, a crisis of imagination. Mm. So that's what all's purpose is, is to provide a space where we can imagine an alternative world. Yeah. Just on that, locally, a lot of activists and academics and, and different organisations have been talking about that divide a lot as well. Like it's, it's very relevant mm. to us here. Activism or advocacy and academia seen as just almost separate spheres in a way and, and there's been people trying to like work out how to best bridge the gap or get communication happening or or sort of get the best of both worlds involved in advocacy campaigns is your history like your personal history or, or the people involved with ALL um, is it more on the academia side or the activist side or have you had struggles with trying to get the two together well, it's funny, talking about our origin and the conference that we attended, I would say I'm more on, you know, the street activism side, getting out and protesting, direct action. And I would say Samar is more on the academic side. And it was a big conversation of that conference. How do we bring these two worlds together? Mm. Quite funny that we, we ended up creating a project together, quite fitting. When I met Chris, I was very much in, deep in the academic world. And to be honest, it, it didn't leave me feeling inspired in the way that direct action makes me feel inspired. Like it made me feel quite hopeless. And then I remember meeting Chris and he had all this energy. And I was like, oh, where do you get this energy from? And he said, you know, activism is not meant to be fun. 
and that just sort of clicked something in my brain and realized there you just got to get down you just got to do the work got to do the mahi it's not going to be fun all the time mm. it has been a very nice marriage between those two worlds yeah it's not going to be fun all the time but doing um, especially hands-on activism when you get reactions from people and you're on the ground having conversations with people you can get inspired a lot more I'd say you know mm. when you're sharing discussions with people and finding common ground you feel like you're making progress yeah but I've always kind of been lacking in terms of the philosophical way, the academic proven connections between forms of oppressions. Mm. So having having some art by my side, has, it's just been an amazing combo. And I should note that Chris actually hasn't had any formal university education and in fact was homeschooled for most of I was his homeschooling years. I well. think homeschool is so much more superior. And when I think about my childhood... I kind of almost can't remember any formal lessons. Like the way that my mother taught me, I guess she taught us kids without us realizing we were learning, you know? Mm, and I think yeah. that's the best way to do it. Although now I can't remember any of my lessons, so I'm unable to teach other people. So <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, no formal education from me. I think um, obviously the system doesn't work for everybody. Uh, and me being outside of it, I think has uh, probably done me a lot of good because I'm a bit of a, uh, I'm a bit of a troublemaker, to be honest. It's quite... Uh, I... <laughs> I think that's absolutely fascinating because the education sector is one that absolutely needs decolonizing. And I'm yeah. probably not mm. telling you anything that you don't know yourselves, but that's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. There's a lot of need to really address that here, and I'm sure the same yeah, with there, you. There yeah, there are some steps here in Aotearoa, like um, yeah. the history of our country. There's mm. conversations now and resources being put together to teach people about the colonial history of Aotearoa and also more stories from our tūpuna, uh, from te ao Māori, um, and that's been largely not present. Uh, you know, we learn about America and France and other countries, and uh, te reo Māori, our language, is soon going mm. to be taught uh, in more kura, in more schools, not just Māori oh, schools, but awesome. in mainstream schools. Yeah, and, you know, it's the perfect place to have those types of reparations, you know, like my mm -hmm. grandparents, for example, were beaten for speaking their own language in schools. And so now that we've come to the place where that language is now actually going to be encouraged and taught in school, it's a beautiful thing. Obviously, we've still got a long way to go, but there are some hopeful things to look to here in Aotearoa. Yeah. It's great to hear. I wanted to ask, you know how you were saying you've had that street activism experience I'm assuming mm. that the pandemic has changed a lot of how that would happen, or at least it would have for a significant amount of time. Were you both doing things before the pandemic or was it only since the pandemic? And did you have to change much with your activism or advocacy because of the pandemic? Luckily enough, um, we were able to organise the country's animal rights march just mm -hmm. was it before or after just before just, just before, before the, lo the first lockdown so we were able to get some direct action out of our system but before the pandemic i was already quite active on social media and since the beginning of my advocacy journey i've been taking resources from academics the main academic that i used to highlight uh, is a freshwater ecologist he's called mike joy and he does some amazing work around connecting environmental harm to animal agriculture so that's something i've been doing for a long time and, and using uh, my social media platforms to highlight his work so social media is something that i've always been comfortable with when the pandemic came i was really glad that i knew how to work a camera uh, and different mm. social media platforms because yeah 
there was a big disruption. Actions being cancelled, people not wanting to get out, out on the streets and your normal advocacy events. People just didn't want to have a bar of it. Being out in public is now seen as something irresponsible. So volunteers and even people on the ground, foot traffic, very dead. So we have to find new ways, creative ways of getting our messages out there. Social media is perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And all leverages social media so, so well. Like I am just so impressed with the range of videos that you have and they're all really informative, you know, varying lengths for obviously different media platforms. Can you tell us a little bit about the background to using, I guess, some of those different mediums? Like I saw that you're really taking off on TikTok and you've, you know, got such a big following there. Was that sort of your intent or or that sort of really, I guess, is the way sort of things have come the last couple of years? It's funny because we resisted TikTok for a very long time. Mm -hmm. We only went on TikTok. (laughs) A month and a half ago. Oh, right. People there are so much more receptive. And I think it's because it's a younger demographic. We're finding that that demographic on TikTok is more open-minded to veganism, non-vegans included. Uh, They're not intimidated by veganism. They have more of an attitude of, oh, you do you, you know, cool. You're, Mm. You're vegan. That's your thing, whatever. Whereas on other platforms, there's a little bit more of, oh, you're a vegan group even though I might agree with some of your anti-oppression content elsewhere, you can feel a little bit of a resistance to the fact Mm. that we are a vegan organization. So yeah, TikTok has been really nice and and it's always inspiring to see young people who are engaged and listening. And there is a lot of energy out there, you know, and I think people who are watching us, who are supportive of the industry, should be afraid because there are a lot of young people with energy to change things. And they just need to be mobilized. And that is something that we feel very passionate about, that young people need a place to express that frustration somewhere that is actually effective, you know, before they get pulled over into quite right wing fascist spaces. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, TikTok is an amazing place in terms of its algorithm. We've found mm. it's been really easy to connect with others about our topics. We've found people who are interested in our work very easily and and a lot of local people. For me, TikTok is where all of our Māori people are. Our younger Māori people, they seem to be drawn to TikTok and our messages so far have really resonated with them. Like Samar said, we didn't want to go on TikTok for the longest time. We were making long-form YouTube videos, Mm. but the reality is people have short attention spans. Yeah. And it is incredibly important to do the longer, just like this with podcasts, but in terms of us adapting ourselves, being creative, working with the times and providing accessible messages for people, TikTok is the perfect place for those little sound bites. And then hopefully people yeah. get interested in your in your messages, your co-popper, and then they take it further and look at your other platforms, your websites and yeah. YouTube and whatnot. Mm. Fantastic. Well, I'm wondering if we should pause there for a moment and go to one of your songs. Yeah. Oh. Excellent. Which of the two songs you chose would you like to play first? Oh, let's pick the energy up a little bit for everybody, I reckon. Raupatu by Alien Weaponry. They're a young, would you call them a heavy metal? They're a metal band. I know the lead singer. It's funny. He used to do an extreme sport with me, a very niche extreme sport. Uh, And the the song, the Waiata, Raupatu, is about stolen Māori land. Um, The word, the kupu. 
Raupatsu uh, means confiscated land. Uh, and so it's a waiata about land confiscation and there's a lot of energy in it and I love it. <laughs> Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. 
It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. Before the break, you heard Alien Weaponry with Ropatsu. Good choice, by the way. I, I liked it. It's a good song. Oh, so good. They're going off at the moment because there's just something interesting about the mix of heavy metal and te reo Māori. Because, you know, people know the haka, right? People yeah. know the haka. And so seeing that grunty, grr, heavy metal energy alongside mm. that Māori energy, I don't know, it just does something. It's a beautiful thing. Nice. Excellent. Um, so... This segment, we were going to discuss dairy. Yeah. Because there's so much to discuss about the dairy industry, right? Oh, yeah. I always get muddled up and unsure where to begin with dairy. There's so many issues. That's kind of the beauty of it in terms of forming campaigns because we're able to feed off of so many different areas. Where would you like us to begin? (laughs) Well, I guess even um, some of the key issues surrounding the emergence of the dairy industry is like a key component of colonisation. Mm. I think that's a fantastic place to start. Mm-hmm. Sure. All over the world, uh, certainly in Aotearoa, dairy and animal agriculture more generally was a big driver of colonisation. If you think about the fact that it takes up a lot of land. The word colony itself actually came from the word that meant farm. It initially meant farm or cultivated land, then the word morphed to mean settled land. Because what happens, of course, is if everyone owns their own private piece of property to farm dairy or other animal agriculture on, eventually you're going to run out of land on your own land. And so they began seeking other lands to turn into private property. And so the ideas of private property and farming are deeply linked with colonization. Uh, And yeah, in Aotearoa, a lot of land was confiscated, a lot of land was stolen or otherwise alienated from Māori to allow for the expansion of animal agriculture. So there's that side of it, just the practical side. And then there is the spiritual side or the psychological, however you want to look at it, the perspective that land and all its inhabitants are there for us to exploit for our own personal profit. It's a very colonial Mm. idea, you know, that in Aotearoa there was no animal farming at all. Sure, Māori ate animals, as did the majority of people, but that specific relationship with the animal, and especially with dairy, you know, you're not just killing an animal to eat them, you are actually exploiting them for their entire life. And in a very intimate way when it comes to dairy, it's that exploitation of a mother's breast milk that is intended for her child. It's deeply disrespectful 
of the sacred and I find that to be a very colonial way of looking at the world whereas we know many indigenous people had very deep spirituality in it uh, and Chris can speak to this more but in Te Ao Māori lots of concepts about our interconnectedness with the natural world and, and other animals. So there's the original push using colonization well, animal agriculture being the push for colonization. And now that it is here, here in Aotearoa, uh, and it's taken such a dominant position, you know, it's our primary export, it's the backbone of our economy, as we say here. Mm. Yeah. It uses more water than any other sector, and its intensive use of our land is, of course, destroying our environment. The majority of our waterways we can't swim in here in Aotearoa. Yeah, it has that origin. Wow. And then, of course, now the practical implications of it existing here in this land is being felt by all of us tremendously. Like all indigenous peoples, but particularly with those who have a real strong connection with the natural world, water is seen as being incredibly sacred. And so now for this industry that has no origin or no historical relation to this land, it's only been here for about 200 years. You know, the first dairy cow came about 200 years ago to Aotearoa. Now it is the primary source of water degradation and soil contamination um, and it's just the most destructive land use practice that we have. Its dominance just shows the colonial power of this industry and its current stranglehold on our government. For it to be so foreign to this land and yet be so dominant just shows the prevalence, the stronghold of colonization and ongoing colonization of our lands and of our water and of our animals as well. Yeah, and, and wow. when dairy and animal agriculture naturalise themselves as part of the identity of Aotearoa, what they're doing at the same time is they're erasing the pre-colonial history wherein dairy did not exist, hmm. and they're erasing the construction of that industry, right? They don't tell you, oh, we had to deforest land that we stole from Māori and we had to bring all these cows. None of those aspects of the story are there. They just tell you this is normal. The implication is that it's always been here. Hmm. Because once we start questioning its construction, it loses some of its normalization. It becomes, oh, this is actually quite a recent thing. It's only been here for a couple of hundred years in Aotearoa, uh, and it was a devastating process getting it to where it is. And in fact, ongoing devastation, because in Aotearoa, not only are we continuing to destroy our own environment, but we import a lot of animal feed and fertilizers that contribute to the destruction of other lands. For example, blood phosphate or PKE, which are leading to the theft and devastation of indigenous lands elsewhere. So the process of colonization is ongoing here and abroad. Yeah, and then on top of that, right, because 90, about 95% of what we produce here is exported, we're now stretching out into different markets, into different third world countries, to other groups who also, like Māori, have not had dairy as a part of their diet. And we're now normalizing dairy consumption in their countries and, and establishing dairy farms in their countries off of models that we've developed here in Aotearoa. So yeah, there's the origin, there's the practical implications of what we're feeling today. The fact that it's so unsustainable, we're having to stretch out into other countries to take their resources and then also selling our products to them. That's it. Yeah. And in many places that we're selling our products, for example, um, in certain parts of Asia, they have lactose intolerance sites of up to, you know, 90 yes. plus percent yeah, of the yeah. population. And there are our main current target markets uh, for places to sell our products. 
And the history of dairy colonizing diets is really dark. For example, at one stage earlier on in the history of dairy, they convinced mothers that dairy was healthier for their children in order to prevent that contraceptive period that women have while they're breastfeeding because they needed workers for capitalism. This is well documented. And this actually still goes on today. A, A recent UN document came out that said that the dairy industry was using misleading and aggressive tactics to convince vulnerable parents all over the world that dairy is healthier, formula is healthier than breastfeeding or that it will soothe their children, help them sleep just to sell their products. So there's a long dark history when it comes to dairy and colonizing people's diets. Wow. Sorry, that just floors you, when you especially when you hear yeah. it in that way with all those layers and it just... Mm. Is such a monumental problem and issue on so many levels. It is. Mm. And, you know, it's stretching out into all those different spaces. I, it's at its limit. I think we're starting around the world to see that people are starting to talk about this more, the prominence of plant-based mm. milk. It's booming. And I think people are really starting to wake up that it's actually just weird to be breastfeeding off of a different animal. Isn't it? Yeah. I, common. It's just so weird. Common sense is starting to prevail a little bit here, I think. But, of course, these corporations um, have million-dollar marketing budgets, and so we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But on that note, let's talk about the future then, shall we? So with World Plant Milk Day, Mm. that's been an initiative of plant-based news for, you know, some years now. So the 2022 World Plant Milk Day is August 22nd, so that's coming up soon. The World Plant Milk Day Challenge really invites people who are interested in plant-based milk alternatives to take their um, seven-day dairy challenge. It's something that has been quite popular here in terms of street activism and advocacy, and we've certainly been involved in some fantastic events that we run with plant-based milk tastings in the past and talking to people about really just how horrific the dairy industry is and giving them alternatives. I think it's really encouraging to see that World Plant Milk Day and that industry is really growing and the market's predicted to be worth $74.2 billion by 2027. So we're on the way to seeing more and more people recognise just how devastating the dairy industry is and actually choose other alternatives but there's a a lot that we need to do to get more people there yeah i love the idea of this corporations always come up with strange ways of advertising their products i don't know what you know but like eat meat day or blah 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 whatever and i just love that activists are now trying to spin that propaganda it's been one of my favorite things as taking the messages from these industries flipping them around with our own spin, using their hashtags and things like that, because I think this started with World Milk Day, and then a clever vegan decided to start using that hashtag and then also creating the hashtag World Plant Milk Day. The World Plant Milk Day hashtag was always trending more than the the World Milk Day hashtag. So that's the whole thing about (laughs) us, you know, using our creativity (laughs) and using social media in these digital spaces, going to where the people are, making these messages accessible to them. That's great. I guess that's a good, I guess, segue to talk a little bit about the Milked documentary and perhaps your involvement with that and the response that you might have had to the film as well. Yeah, sure. So 
Milked is a documentary that I worked on for about two to three years with Amy Taylor from Ahimsa Films. She's the director and producer. I'm the co-producer, and I guess you could say the host of the film. It follows me going around Aotearoa, speaking to different experts, scientists, politicians, dairy farmers themselves, animal rights activists, and environmental advocates. We've had amazing support. We have executive producers um, Keegan Kuhn, who was co-producer of Cowspiracy, of course, and many other films. Susie Amos Cameron is also an executive producer, and we had um, Moby as well jump on towards the end as an executive producer too. It is an Aotearoa-centric film, but of course the dairy industry is a global issue, so we try to work in globally relevant narratives to the film as well. But I really recommend it for people who really want to get a detailed insight into the beast that it is that we're fighting here in Aotearoa. But for me, one thing that really struck me while we were creating this film was learning about what our farmers are faced with. They're really lacking industry leadership in terms of sensible pathways for them, in terms of transitioning, in terms of cleaning up the dairy system, they're lacking that industry leadership and also lacking support from our government in terms of them transitioning. And that's pretty much the take-home message that we have for people, is that if we are wanting to get a solution around our dairy industry, then we need to find ways to support our dairy farmers to change. We can't just make these demands and shout at them and have these narrow-minded approaches to this issue. We need to bring farmers along with us. That's about supporting them to change, less demanding them to change. We really need to bring them with us and find solutions that work for them as well. Um, we've won some incredible awards internationally at international film festivals, but it is really difficult here in Aotearoa to talk about this industry, especially at a political level. We have more dairy cows than we do human beings here. Uh, uh, so you can imagine not only the environmental toll that that brings, but also the economic and political push considering the size of this industry. My favorite quote from the film is from Peter Fraser, who's an economist who has a lot of experience with the dairy industry, who says, once you realize that the cows are more important than we are, suddenly everything in New Zealand politics starts to make sense. And for me, that really encapsulates the political push, the might of this industry, uh, which shows why it's been able to push through into so many different um, aspects of our society. By the way, it's on the Plant Based News YouTube channel and on Water Bear for those who are wanting to watch it. We'll be feeding off of this momentum, working with these experts that we've been able to team up with through the film to continue pushing on campaigns around pushing back against the might of this industry. For Summer and I, the Dietary Guidelines campaign is a campaign that's going to be run by our organization, Aotearoa Liberation League, uh, and hopefully different um, nutrition and dietitian groups throughout Aotearoa, and hopefully also different Māori health organizations. Because the thing about the Dietary Guidelines campaign is to try include Māori consultation in the drafting of those dietary guidelines. Considering um, those of non-European descent have high levels of lactose intolerance, particularly Māori, Pacifica, even Asians and Indians, essentially if you're, not, if you're not European you have higher levels of lactose intolerance. Our argument is yeah. that it's racist to give that blanket recommendation in the yeah. guidelines and once we have Māori included in the consultation process, along with us making recommendations on applying the most recent 
data and science, then these individuals themselves will come to the conclusion that dairy needs to be removed. But we're not going to make that outright demand ourselves that dairy will be removed. I believe they'll come to those conclusions themselves. Yeah, so Canada, they recently changed their nutrition guidelines after removing industry consultation. Because So for context, the way that our guidelines are drawn is we have lots of amazing scientists and reviewers making recommendations and then we have industry consultation and then we have a few more reviews and then the very last step is industry consultation and I've been trying to find Mm. out from the government what happens between that step of industry consultation and the final step of the guidelines are drafted and they haven't been very forthcoming but from what we can see, industry has a last say, and from what we can tell, their recommendations were mostly implemented. And so following in Canada's mm. lead, they actually removed the industry consultation process. And once they did that, lo and behold, dairy was removed as a food group. And so we're hoping by firstly yeah. removing industry consultation and secondly including iwi consultation um, because there are other issues with the nutritional guidelines beyond dairy that are very colonial. <laughs> mm, For example, yeah. they, they don't recommend starches because they say, oh, people tend to add potatoes and stuff with a lot of oil, which is unhealthy. But actually, starches are very good for you. Potatoes are very good for you. Kumara, sweet potatoes, yeah. one of the main staples of a Maori diet. So for that to not even be recommended mm. for people is very, very problematic. Racist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to go to your second song. The second song, second waiata, is from Maisie Rika. She's a Maori artist, beautiful wahine beautiful music, and it's called Waiti Waita, and those, um, ingoa, Waiti Waita, those are stars in the constellation Matariki, which I think is called Pilates mm. in other parts of the world. Um, here, here in Aotearoa, we call it Matariki, uh, and it's a very significant time. It's known as the Maori New Year, and the reading of these stars in the constellation Waiti Waita, those stars particularly relate to fresh water and salt water, and they can communicate things to us, such as if harvesting in the ocean will be good this year. There's also a star for gardening as well for us vegans <laughs> um, around whether or not our garden mm. harvests will be good or not. Matariki.
you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. You just heard Maisie Rika with Waiti Waita. And we are joined by the Aotearoa Liberation League today. It's been a fantastic chat. And it's uh, Summer and Chris that are with us. Woo! <laughs> hey again. <laughs> <laughs> so I did want to talk about some of the topics that you've covered in your videos and particularly some of the longer form videos that you have on YouTube, which I absolutely love. Mm. One in particular really resonated with me, which is the Is Veganism Just About Animals video. Mm. And I feel that there's some real differences of opinion around this topic. And I absolutely love your comment, Summer, about showing solidarity doesn't mean shifting our focus away from animals. It's about knowing what we stand for. And I think that's so hugely important and possibly in some ways can be misunderstood that if we are showing solidarity to other causes – and to other fights for justice, that we are somehow removing our focus from animals. I just found this so compelling. Do you want to talk a little bit about that topic? Yeah, so that was the first video we ever made together. Um, Oh, oh, right. And that was um, a big conversation at the time and still is, you know, of can animal advocates, should animal advocates talk about other things? And we were like, oh, you know what, let's look at the history of veganism. Let's learn ourselves how we got to this point of veganism and see if the roots of veganism are quite single issue. And what we found is that from thousands of years ago, when the philosophy of nonviolence was being talked about in ancient India, it was always all-encompassing. And right through to the Western modern iteration of nonviolence, veganism, those people who came up with that English word, naturally they were English-speaking people, they were quite holistic about it and they saw veganism as a tool for all of our liberation and they said that in those exact words Um, and they felt very passionate that it was part of a bigger peace movement. It was interesting to see that history of veganism and then compare that to how a lot of advocates say no no there's no room for anything else we can only talk about animals and I get that I get where that's coming from it's coming from that intense sense of urgency because what's happening to animals is just truly horrific on an unimaginably large scale and it is incomparable even to what has happened to humans Mm -hmm. ever so I get that the one thing that I think 
we could benefit from though is to not react from that space of trauma and not to react from that space of shock and horror and urgency and to take a deep breath and step back and see how does this animal oppression actually fit in the global picture of oppression of 99.99% of existence because it's not separate to those other structures it's very very intertwined it's part of the colonial fabric for me it's clear that if we want to unpick threads of the fabric any thread that we pick is gonna weaken it actually that video we learned a lot through making it we found out about a lot of incredible activists historically who have been really massive yes. in the civil rights movement and many other liberation movements mm -hmm who came into animal rights through that perspective. And I think that that's erased not just by vegans, to be fair. I think that non-vegans often erase the leftist sort of progressive radical space that veganism came from. They often erase the non-white voices who promoted vegan across history. There are actually many activists that people often talk about, like Angela Davis or Dick Gregory, but no one mentions their advocacy for veganism. So I think it's vegans and non-vegans who erase mm. that yeah. radical history of veganism. Yeah, I mean, when we look at veganism, it's about non-violence. It's about peace. And when we simply apply it to our non-human animals, there's obviously a huge gap that we leave out. And it's easy to understand why, you know, human rights advocates and environmental advocates quite often we see animals left out of the conversation and so obviously for those of us wanting to advocate mm -hmm. on behalf of animals we get incredibly frustrated and I think that frustration has led a lot of us to the more narrow-minded approach in terms of our advocacy for animals. For me that just doesn't work with anything you know if you apply that thinking that system to anything else if your processes are excluding others and you're not meeting people where they're at, you're not trying to bring others along with you, and essentially you're just trying to look after yourself and the things that you want to change and things that you care about, it's going to fail because we live in such a multifaceted society. And if you're yeah. wanting to achieve anything, it has to be social. It has to be working with other people. We're a part of this world together. If you're doing anything and not making your pathway accessible or working in with other people. It's impossible for us to get momentum. The forces that we're working against are incredibly powerful, incredibly resourced. And when we have this reactionary approach to our advocacy and activism, we're not doing anyone any favor. Even ourselves, you know, all vegans, we don't just care about animals. We care about so many different things, but yeah. the fact that it's being left out of other conversations, it gets us riled up, it frustrates us, and it, it forces us to go down this reactionary path that I think isn't helpful for anyone. And I would say the industries, those in power, they want us to be fractured. They don't want people to have a galvanized mm. movement. Mm. When we do start to have that galvanized movement and have momentum, that's when we can really create change. And yeah, the video that we're talking about is veganism, just about the animals. That was spurred on by quite a few people in the animal rights movement today, essentially trying to reframe veganism, saying that veganism is mm -hmm. just about the animals. For me, especially from what we learned from our research, that's not true. And even in my heart, I know it's not true. Veganism is inherently about peace. 
It's about radiating non-violence and applying it consistently. We know that discrimination is the root of what's wrong with everything. When we talk about speciesism, we're talking about discrimination. When we discriminate in terms of our application of peace to others, we're recreating the worst aspects of speciesism. And so my advice, particularly to animal rights advocates and activists, is that we do need to take that deep breath. We do need to take a step back and we need to think about holistic responses. It's really not hard for us to tie campaigns together that are based around collective justice, around collective liberation. Because animal issues are woven into the fabric of our society, therefore it's quite easy for us to lean on allies who are also negatively being affected by these systems and for us to come up with campaigns together that gets benefits for both of us. And of course, those benefits, it helps all of us. That's what we need to be doing uh, so that we can make some momentum. Yeah. One thing to remember, you know, is that corporations, although they have their independent interests, they work together as one. So we, the people, need to work together as one if we have any chance of making any change against that system. What it comes down to is that we really believe in veganism. We think veganism could help create a spiritual revolution. And to do that, we think it has to be a matter of consistent non-violence and truly believing and feeling that within ourselves as individuals. Because that will revertebrate. People will feel that. They will feel and they will connect with that energy of hey, you are actually promoting non-violence across the board. Maybe there is something there when it comes to animals. I think it does come from this deep belief in the revolutionary energy of veganism for individuals and then also as collectives. Yeah. We've only got a few minutes left. So we really did want to talk about prisons and the abolition of incarceration, but I know we also really want to talk about being strategic and where to from here. So I think we're going to just hand it over to you in these last few minutes to sort of talk about all of those things. Sure. So prison abolition is something that's very close to our hearts. And um, as a quick summary for listeners, prison abolition isn't about creating a vacuum when it comes to people causing harm, it's just about imagining a new system. You know, as the late Moana Jackson said, there is no indigenous culture around the world that had prisons before colonization. This is a colonial mm. concept. But indigenous people did have ways of dealing with harm. Of course they did. We're not saying we need yeah. to go back to any specific thing. We're just saying that we need to start talking about a different system other than prisons. The reason for that is, first and foremost, prisons don't work. The mm. recidivism or reoffending rate in Aotearoa is 50% of people go back to prison and 70% of people get convicted again within two years of imprisonment. It targets poor and brown people. In Aotearoa, once again, half of our prison population is Māori. That's shameful because only 15% of our population is Māori. Australia is even worse when it comes to indigenous incarceration. And it targets street crimes as opposed to blue-collar crimes, right? Capitalists and big corporations, they inflict so much more violence on people through poverty, through misinformation, through unhealthy food, etc., etc., but they will never go to prison, right? I like to bring up, you know, George Bush and his cohort. They killed about a million of my people. I'm from Iraq. They didn't go to prison. They're living their lush lives, of course, mm. and yet so many poor people are rotting in prisons. There is no justice in it. And for me, prisons encapsulates in the same way that um, animal oppression does. The way that we can create categories 
and these categories, they are essentially how the colonial world organizes our thought processes. It puts everyone in different categories. And these categories, they create the conceptual vehicle for violence. That's a quote from AFCO. Essentially, whoever is in that category, we're allowed to be violent to them, right? So for example, animal is one of those categories. Well, you could say that people who are in prison or people who are criminalized are animalized. They are seen as animals. They are put in that category. And you see it with the response to our videos about prison abolition. A lot of the comments are just, oh, they're criminals. Who cares is the attitude. Because they're in that category. Yeah. If they're criminals, that means we don't have empathy towards them. So for me, tackling any category like that, any category that erases our empathy, is a powerful way to challenge the way colonial societies create systems of domination hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. I've got nothing to add in terms of prison abolition, but simply that I feel our thoughts on this is simply that consistent application of vegan values, of nonviolence, of expanding mm. our circles of compassion, of looking after the most marginalized. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and in our final moments... I guess it would be nice for us to just say thank you to everybody mm. um, who's been supporting us. Mm. We really, really do believe in the values of veganism. And I think vegan activists, they're incredibly passionate and they're such a force. When we start to galvanize our movement more, the passion that drives vegan activists and that drive to achieve justice for non-human animals, when we can come together on campaigns, we are an incredibly powerful force. I'm hoping those of us out there who have disagreements in terms of strategies around animal advocacy, animal rights, that we can start to have more conversations together around building back those bridges and working on campaigns together. And everyone that's been following our work with Aotearoa Liberation League, whether it's on Instagram, TikTok or Facebook, you may be frustrated that we talk about a range of different issues. But this is us just being not just true to our own values, but also trying to teach the vegan movement about things that we think are important in terms of how we can apply that consistent vegan value into different spaces. And we're seeing that by us doing that, we're building really valuable connections with other movements and finding commonalities in how we can support other movements. And they're also finding commonalities in terms of how they can support us. I really recommend to vegans out there, animal rights advocates, to learn about other movements, to look inside yourself as well and see how you'd like to consistently apply your vegan ethic to other social justice movements. And when we start building those bridges, galvanizing ourselves into one movement, that's when we're going to start seeing real change. Yeah. My goodness, thank you so much. You're both so incredibly generous with your knowledge and it's just been an absolute pleasure to mm. meet you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. We'll definitely have to ask you to come back again. <laughs> of course. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks heaps. Thanks. No worries. Thanks everyone for listening. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having us and thank you to all the listeners. Yeah, you do amazing work. Yeah, yeah. So Freedom of Species, wow. we'll be back next week from 1 till 2 p.m. on Sundays. We have some T-shirts still for sale if you're interested and we have some fundraising plans for the month of August. So stay tuned to our social media for that on Facebook and on Twitter. We're going to leave today with the recently late Olivia Newton-John. She wrote a song that was against the slaughter of dolphins and this song is called The Promise, the dolphin song. 
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.